Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York City jazz sax journeyman Donnie McCaslin. Over the course of our interview, he touched on the whirlwind he is going through these days in the wake of being on David Bowie's final album, Black Star. But our focus of the interview is a long road that has been dedicated to the jazz craft. It started in Santa Cruz, California, and being inspired by his dad who played the jazz vibes, and one particular cat in that band with his dad that played the saxophone. He went on to the Berklee College of Music and would make New York City his home, playing with the best like Maria Schneider and Dave Douglas. He spoke candidly with Neon Jazz about his career, his future, and much more. Dig this interview, my friends. Good morning, Donnie. Yeah, it's Joe Domino. Joe, how are you doing? Hey, I'm wonderful. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good, thanks. Hey, thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. It's my pleasure. So let's go ahead and dive in here, and I want to get an idea of what has been going on lately. I know you're always busy doing live gigs, and there's always things going on, but give me a snapshot of what's been going on. Let's see. I'm trying to think how to explain it. <laughs> it's been a combination <laughs> of still doing you know, press interviews about Black Star, and then um, I'm starting to travel like I'm in Louisville right now at the University of Louisville doing a guest artist appearance, doing my usual teaching at the Manhattan School of Music and the New England Conservatory, and then a lot of calls with my with my agent, planning things for the fall and the summer, and for even for early next year. So I'm trying to manage manage that. And then, you know, there's been talks with record labels about a new record label situation. So it's it's been kind of overwhelming. A lot yeah. of great stuff, you know, to be to to have the opportunity to um, participate in, but but it's 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 been a lot, you know. And plus, I have two young children, so oh, wow. just the um, you know, that I'm, uh, you know, just just parenting and getting them to to and from school and to the doctor and all that stuff, you know, is is uh, it's been overwhelming. But um, and I'm you know just trying to work on um, becoming a better musician, and and that's an ongoing process, you know, trying to have time to, to work on that and and uh, so yeah it's been pretty pretty overwhelming yeah I would, I would imagine so i only had basically one one and a half questions about black star because i don't want that to be the focus i want this to be about you and your life but the only thing from a jazz perspective what was it like to be around that kind of creative force with mark with david with everybody to make something that has gotten such a good response. I mean, it was it was it was tremendous, and you know, the whole experience was a life changing event. When we play together with Mark, Mark, Jason, and Tim and I, there's a there's a a real cohesiveness in the group, and a lot of interplay, and a lot of dialogue amongst the band as we're playing, and that dynamic um, was only enhanced by David's presence because he was an active participant in that he was tracking live with us as we were recording and he sang with a lot of passion and conviction. It was, it was a beautiful sense of cohesion and interplay amongst all five of us. We recorded it. We did a week in January, 2015, another week in February with the five of us. And then in March we did about four days and Ben Maunder joined us and Ben fit in seamlessly to that dynamic. So it was, it was really 
invigorating. It was ex- so exciting because, you know, because I think as we were recording, we all felt that it, something special was happening. The songs, as you know, were great songs. Uh, the framework that he set out there um, for, for each song was fantastic. And just that dynamic was present from the very first day. And it continued through the whole recording process of just, you know, great interplay amongst the band. And, and again, it was exciting to have to have him there because because it was it was pushing us, and I think we were pushing him. It was just a great a great fit and a great dynamic uh, be- between everybody involved. Wonderful. So let me get into your life. You grew up in Santa Cruz, California. I want to know about your childhood and how you got to a point where you fell in love with jazz and got involved with music? So my father is a jazz musician, Don McCaslin, and um, my parents were divorced at a young age, so I lived with my mother, but I would see my father one day a week, usually, and that happened to be Sunday, and he would come and pick me up. I lived outside of Santa Cruz in an area called Happy Valley, um, my father lived over in Aptos, uh, so he would come pick me up in the morning and, and drive me down to downtown Santa Cruz. There was, there's a mall called the Pacific Garden Mall, and it's um, in the heart of town. And prior to the Loma Prieta earthquake, there was an, a beautiful old courthouse called the Cooper House. It had been converted into shops and, and, and a restaurant and a bar and... and um, in front of the Cooper House, there was this outdoor patio section that that was adjacent to the mall. So um, there, there was tables and chairs, and people would sit out in the sun, you know, because Santa Cruz has, has got really moderate, you know, great weather. So it's sunny a lot through the year and, and no, no humidity. So, you know, a lot of tourists would come and, and sit there. And my father, there was a bandstand out there, and that's where my father's band, which was called Warmth played and he started this gig there in the early 1970s and was playing you know anywhere from i don't know four to six days a week with his band over the years up until the earthquake and when the earthquake happened the building was demolished but so all that to say on sunday mornings my ritual with my father was going down there helping him to set up his piano vibraphone marimba and then when i was quite young it was just a little a chair that I would sit on on the bandstand while he played, and they would play roughly noon to five, depending on weather and turnout. So I would just sit there and listen. And as I got older, I was able to kind of just walk around the mall as they were playing. But when I was 12 years old, I made an impulsive decision to switch out of a class in junior high school into the beginning orchestra because my best friend from grade school, my from elementary school, was in beginning orchestra and my father asked me what instrument I wanted to play and I said tenor saxophone and and it was an impulsive choice on my part but looking back on it I think it's because one of the guys I had grown up watching who played in my father's band his name was Wesley Braxton and he was you know he was a hippie he had this you know long beard and he wore tie-dye t-shirts and he used to play these my, my dad's band played a combination of great American songbook material, Cal Jader-esque Latin jazz, and like funk, you know, groove tunes like Mustang Sally, Feel Like Making Love, 
stuff like that. You know, so it was horn players and singers and percussionists. And anyway, the saxophone player on these vamp tunes, like a Cal Jader vamp, Soul Sauce, for example, they'd have sometimes long solos. And this guy, Wesley, would take these energetic solos and it was kind of avant-garde and some squeaks and squawks. And, you know, the people on the, watching from the, you know, the, the mall and just dancing in the streets. And it was a very kind of fest, festive atmosphere. And I think that was, an, you know, made an impression on me looking back on it. I remember looking into the bell of his saxophone and it was like a pool of condensation and a cigarette butt floating in it, you know. Not that I was a fan. I've never been a cigarette smoker. But, you know, I think it all seemed very cool to me as a kid. That's where I'm going at that. So that was the choice. You know, it was tenor saxophone. I was 12 years old, got into beginning orchestra. My father got me lessons with his new saxophone player, Brad Hecht, which is like H-E-C-H-T. He's a great guy. And he got me started. And I was with him for about a year then I uh, or two maybe. And then I switched over to um, Paul Contos, C-O-N-T-O-S. Took lessons from him. And Paul is now the um, head of the Monterey Jazz Festival Next Generation Orchestra. So he's a great educator. So I, I studied with him as a teenager. But so, you know, junior high school and then the high school transition, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my father living in Aptos, you know, I was zoned to go to a, a, a school that had a good program in Santa Cruz. But my father in his town in Aptos, there was a, a really strong jazz program. I remember going to like summer music camp after eighth grade and was kind of maybe debating which school to go to. And a couple of the guys who played at the Aptos in the Aptos program were counselors there. And they were good guys, Kendall Wilson and Scott Norgren. And, and, and they both, they recruited me. No, I'm joking. They wasn't really recruiting, but you know, they, they, I just, I mean, them made a big impression on me. And, and, and so I went to Aptos high school and, and it just changed my life because the band director there, um, his name was Don Keller. And uh, he, it was a trumpet player who had been in the Navy prior to, to becoming a high school teacher. And his best friend in the Navy was the trumpet player, Bill Berry. So Bill Berry had been in Duke Ellington's band and was now living in Los Angeles. And he had a big band. I think it was called the LA big band or something like that. Bill had a collection of Duke Ellington charts, which he got, which Don got copies of. And this was back in the era. So this is like, 1980, when I get to high school, you know, he has a whole book of Duke Ellington charts at a time when those charts were not readily available for high school or college parents. So it was kind of like this hidden gem thing where, I mean, five days a week, we spent rehearsing Duke Ellington music primarily. Also dance music, Glenn Miller and stuff like that, but it was primary, primarily Duke Ellington was the focus at the small town, you know, in, in Santa Cruz, so outside of Santa Cruz. So it was really, and he was just a great educator. So that experience, I mean, you know, it was just, it was, it was amazing. He was, he was a fantastic band director. And then we would go to these, you know, high school competitions, Monterey Jazz Festival, these different festivals and, you know, and we'd always do well. And, and it, it was just, just amazing. And it was, it was, a, it was I guess, a place in time where his junior high school had a, had a strong band director, Craig Johnson. So Aptos kept getting fed, you know, young musicians who were ready to play. And then I transferred over. And then another guy, Kenny Wallison, who I went to junior high school with, transferred over also. 
And Kenny, um, you know, lives in New York now, and he's played with John Zorn, and he's been in Bill Frizzell's band for many years, and Steve Bernstein's Sex Mobs. He's had this great career, and this is funny. I look back on it and think, like, man, that the first gig I ever played was with this guy. We were 12 years old. We went to junior high school and high school together, and and now we're both living in New York City, and you know, are musicians, and we're really products of that environment. I guess the, the other thing that was happening in Santa Cruz at that time was the Columba Jazz Center had opened up in the mid-70s, this great nonprofit run by Tim Jackson and others. Every Monday night in Santa Cruz, that was the big jazz night where you could go to the Columba Jazz Center and hear Art Blakey's band, Cedar Wall's wow. band, Dave Liebman, you know, just, just every Monday night. Because the dynamic at that point was that bands would play, I think, Tuesday through Sunday in San Francisco like at the Keystone Corner or places like, I guess probably primarily the Keystone Corner. And then they would come down to Santa Cruz for their off night and play on Monday. So it was just amazing. You know, Freddie Hubbard, Joe Henderson, Elvin Jones. I mean, the list goes on and on. So, wow. but a quick snapshot of that for me was at 12 years old, having just made this decision to play tenor saxophone, I'm hearing my dad's band play once a week. But then, you know, my dad takes me down to hear Elvin Jones's band you know, at the Columbia Jazz Center on a Monday night. And, of course, at 12 years old, how do you process hearing Elvin Jones? Yeah. <laughs> but I got to um, meet him, and Pat LaBarba was playing tenor saxophone, and, and, and I loved it. I loved Elvin and his vibe, and I met his wife. And, I mean, it was an amazing experience for a 12-year-old. And I had weekly access to that, I guess is where I'm, where I'm going with that. And, you know, Kenny volunteered there, and he was there every Monday. I, I didn't go every Monday, but I went regularly, and, they had classes, you know, I was in their ensemble and harmony class and stuff. And then, so it was, you know, Santa Cruz is a small town, but it was a really vibrant art city, even more than that. So then I, you know, I'm, you know, now like, I don't know, let's say I'm a junior or sophomore high school or whatever, the local community college um, called Cabrillo College had a really strong program. And um, there was two guys, Lyle Cruz and then Ray Brown, the trumpet player, Ray Brown, He's a great arranger, great harmony teacher. Those were the two heads of the program there. Well, I guess Lyle was the head, but it was the two main teachers there, and they were both fantastic. So not only I had the opportunity to play in this great, great high school band, started to play with my father's band, hearing music at the Columba, but then also getting into the Cabrillo band system as a high school student because they rehearsed, you know, like after high school let out, so we could do both. And I mean, it was just, I was playing all the time and playing with great musicians and with great educators. I mean, it was a really, you know, it was a fantastic, you know, environment to, to, to learn in. And, you know, things have changed now. You know, the, both the band directors retired, the, you know, budget cuts have decimated the, you know, so, yeah. uh, so the, the high school program is nowhere near what it was. And they didn't even have a music program for a while. You know, Cabrillo is also, it's probably not the same level of, um, well, I'm not sure what's happening at Cabrillo. I know there's a new director there, but it's, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where I think it was a place in time where all these elements were in place where I could just plug myself into this. And it was amazing. Since you were young, has it always been music? That's what you wanted to do with your life? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, prior to age 12, you know, I love basketball and sports and stuff. So I, you know, probably, you know, want to you know be a basketball player or whatever. But once I started playing saxophone, 
I, I will say it was very clear to me from the beginning that this is what I wanted to do. There was, you know, there were a lot of frustrating moments. You know, I remember after a year of playing, you know, I thought I would be, I don't know, you know, I thought I would be at a certain level or something, and I wasn't. And it was, you know, I was, I was, I was really frustrated and and emotional about it, but I, but I hung in there. Um, you know, I think in some ways I had, you know, I had there was some difficulties in my childhood, and I think like music was really, and improvising was really like a a cathartic kind of experience, or cathartic is maybe it was a really it was a way for me to channel my emotions, you know, and to express myself. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. So I think that was something that was really that drew me to it. I mean, in in, in a way, you know, I still it's funny because I, I I talked to my father, you know, and I've always been struck by it. my father loves music so much, and he really loves like that a certain era of of great American song work, you know, things where he knows thousands of tunes, he knows all the lyrics, he knows that kind of thing. Um, you know, a couple walks into where he's playing and he'll remember the song, their favorite song, you know, that kind of, and, 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 um, and I, and I look, and I love music too, very, very deeply, but I think something that's slightly different for me is I realize it's also for me, the opportunity to express myself through music is, is also really, really compelling. And I'm not saying it's not for my dad. But it's just a, there's some something I noticed about that. So you, you've been baptized in music from a young age, and then you move yeah. on to the Berkeley College of Music. What was it yeah. like to go from one coast to another and to get further steeped into the music scene? Yeah, it, well, it was intense. I mean, because you know Santa Cruz is this, has a certain dynamic, you know, and, and 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 environment. And then you know, moving to Bo- I hadn't traveled much as a kid, so going to Boston. It was my first time on the East Coast and, and stuff. And so just the cold weather, <laughs> everything was kind of like, well, but it was actually actually great because because the weather pattern is what it is, it was a lot more conducive for me to just stay inside and practice, you know. It wasn't like sunny and 70, 70 degrees every day where you, you're, you know, five minutes walk from the beach like Santa Cruz is. So it, it was a great environment. and But more than that, it was really, you know, going to a place where there was a bunch of people my age who were just as, as talented or more talented than me and being, you know, getting there and just seeing all these great saxophone players and, <laughs> you know, just kind of blown away by it. But then also, you know, having the chance to interact with them and learn from them and, and find out what they're listening to, what they're practicing, stuff like that. It was, it was, it was fantastic. I had a great college experience and, and I stayed for four years. I had an opportunity to leave to go with Buddy Rich's band at some point, you know, before school was over, but I knew that I wasn't sort of ready emotionally, you know, mature-wise, but also even musically, that I need more time to more time to sort of process stuff and practice. So I stayed in school, and and it was great because then I ended up starting to play with Gary Burton's band in the middle of my senior year, and that carried me out of college. But I mean, I finished school, but that, you know, I was fortunate to have this gig coming out of school. You know, some of the teachers that stand out to me, Herb Pomeroy amazing Joe Viola. It's just a lot of great musicians when I was in school there and, and I really it really pushed me and, and helped me to learn. Absolutely. That had to be a huge experience to go out on the road with Professor Gary Burton. I mean, you oh, get yeah. the formal education in the classroom and then you get the real world. That had to be a huge experience for you. Oh yeah, unbelievable. I mean, yeah, because and he's also he's a great educator and, and he's also, you know, really his experience, you know, he would talk often about the business of music, you know, how to manage things on the road, 
um, politics, you know, uh, food. I mean, it was just a lot of, you know, long car rides, of course, and, and, and whatnot. And, and just a lot of conversation about, about the world and history and stuff. So it was, you know, it was learning not only about music and, and, and how to manage, you know, a career as a musician, but also just about a lot of, you know, a variety of topics. So yeah, it was, it was like a, you know, it was, it was like a graduate degree and stuff. And, and it was, and it was also, I was so fortunate to have steady work coming out of school as a jazz musician. Um, and, and I was able to experience that dynamic that had been in place for so long in this music where as a young musician, you know, you are studying with somebody who's a master and you're in their band and you're learning. Um, so, so it was, it was tremendous. So let me ask you this from the early goes of performing at 12 with your dad and, and, and on from there, were you ever nervous on stage or has it been kind of a natural fit for you? Oh, I was definitely, yeah, I've definitely been nervous on stage. Yeah. I mean, you know, looking back at that time, it, you know, it feels like a lifetime ago in a way because I'm 49 now and I definitely was nervous. I mean, and have been, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, every day is different. So sometimes not nervous at all. Sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes a little nervous, sometimes a lot nervous, you know, it's, it's manifested itself differently over the years. I mean, in some ways it's maybe been, it's been helpful, you know, to get me focused and to get me, you know, kind of ready, you know, on edge and ready to perform. When I was younger, I probably, there was moments of more insecurity and more self-doubt and having to, you know, work through that has been a, you know, good experience for me as a, as a sort of person and a musician and growing and, you know, becoming more confident and more believing more in my abilities and all that stuff. You know, that's a process. It didn't, you know, I had, I remember Gary saying, I think the first time I played in his, a group that he led, it was like a jazz cruise and I was still in, in, in college and he put together like a student group to play, uh, to do this week long jazz cruise. And I remember he came to hear me play at a recital and I was, I knew he was there and I was really nervous and I, and I really struggled. I played really poorly because I was so insecure or whatever. We had a couple rehearsals, but I still got into the group somehow. We did a couple of rehearsals and I remember feeling like I was really struggling in the rehearsals because of being nervous. But then once we got on the cruise ship and we got on the stage, I remember feeling a lot better and more relaxed. And I felt like I played to the best of my ability at that point in my life. And he commented on it at some point afterwards saying, basically he observed that, that once I got on stage, I was like a different player. And I, and I realized, well, that's because I was fortunate to have so much experience playing with my father's band, with my own group, with Kenny Wallison and, and a bunch of other guys that we, you know, we had a small group when I was in Santa Cruz, all the, all the stuff with my high school, big band, the Cabrillo bag band, all that experience as a youngster, that was really kind of my comfort zone. So once I got on the stage, I stopped, you know, thinking so much, stopped being so nervous and just played. I was happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was fortunate that I, you know, I got to get, get to my comfort zone, I guess. It wasn't an easy path for me. And then I think in my twenties, you know, that probably still manifested itself in different ways. And, you know, I just, my attitude is just, I just, I've worked at it, you know, and, you know, now I, I hard, I mean, I, I don't even know if I get nervous now, maybe a little bit here and there. I think the first night David Bowie came to hear us, I was, a, you know, a touch nervous. But again, once we start playing, it usually goes away and I just get lost in the music. Absolutely. 
speaking of New York and playing live, you get there in 91, kind of the completion of your jazz journey, so to speak, your evolution. What was it like? You start playing with Eddie Gomez. You um, join Steps Ahead. You release a disc in 95. What was that like to get there and have things just immediately begin? It was a little overwhelming at first because you, even though I had been there and I'd, I'd spent some time there as a student and then played there already a few times, I think, with Gary Burton, done week-long runs, it's just such a fast-paced environment. I think initially you just have this feeling of like, wow, where, you know, will I ever, how am I going to sort of connect to the music world here? There's so many musicians and so many scenes and, you know, it's just this kind of overwhelming city, but um, it was so great to just have access to amazing music every night. And part of being overwhelmed was, you know, going and hearing um, fantastic players every night and feeling like, wow, I want to sound like that. And then going to another club and hearing another saxophone player or, or any instrument and saying, oh, no, I want to play like that, like that. You know, it's, it takes a while to process all the, all the great things that are happening. Um, it's deeply inspiring, you know, and really motivates you to work. And, you know, kept working, kept working on things. And, um, and then, you know, these opportunities would come up and, uh, and I would just try to always make, do, do my very best in, in, in all those situations. And I'm going to make it a little bit more specific. Over the years you played with the Maria Schneider Orchestra, you've been with Dave Douglas and his quintet, you've been with countless yeah. people. What is it like to be around groups of musicians that are so polished and so driven in an environment like New York? I learn a lot from it. You know, I, like those experiences um, uh, with 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 Maria's band, for example, you know your your description is right on point. I mean, the band is filled with you know all star musicians and great soloists, and so part of that for me is it's still like being in school in a way where it, there's a there's a great sense of camaraderie in the band and community, and um, you know I'm curious like what are people you know, what are people, sometimes we're talking about what are people listening to, what do you think about this record, you know, what are you practicing, listening to how other people practice, but also just listening to the guys on the bandstand, you know, it's amazing to sit there and, and have Steve Wilson get up for a for a solo, he sits right next to me and he plays, and then the next solo is to be Scott Robinson, who sits just on the left of me, and hearing him play, you know, Rich Perry's an amazing tenor player, you know, getting him to hear him play, Dave Pietro, um, just speaking of the saxophone section, it's you know it's really inspiring, and it also it, it also pushes you to to do your very best because they're all sounding great and they keep raising the bar, and so you want to you know participate in that and do that as well, and that's something I really enjoy about that about the, both those situations or all, you know all the situations that, that the level is so high and people are you know. Um, nobody's really slacking off or anything. Everybody's doing their best. And, and, and so I think it brings out the best for you. I think it'd be harder for me to live in a place where I was isolated and alone and just everything was up to me in terms of my musical development and how I studied. I tend to do better in these kind of environments that you're describing where, you know, I'm in sort of a sense of, you know, I'm around these other musicians or in community with them. Just the, the vibe of that helps to motivate me. Absolutely. Well, and obviously things have worked out. You've you received awards over the years, like the Doors Do Grant. Is there an award that you got, not your favorite one, but is there one that you got that just kind of blindsided you where you were like, wow, I didn't expect that? 
I think maybe the the Grammy um, nominations. Um, each time that's happened, I think I've 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 been um, yeah really surprised and and um, honored to to have it happen. Let me ask you this: You mentioned when you were twelve the tenor sax player, the hippie in the band. Yeah. Who else would you consider music heroes that really kind of fueled you to uh, do what you do as a jazz musician? Yeah, well, there's a lot, you know. I mean, think about chronologically. It's, you know, so there's, you know, Wesley. And then, of course, when I started playing, it was Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. And then the era that I grew up in, you know, Michael Brecker was just sort of emerging as the as the tenor sax hero. So he was a big influence on me. In my teenage years and early 20s, you know, I was so taken with his unbelievable playing, as, as so many people were. Um, and I think also growing up in the Bay Area, Joe Henderson um, was living in San Francisco at that time. And I never got to study with him. But the teacher I had mentioned, my first teacher, Brad Heck, was studying with Joe when I was studying with him. So I was hearing stories about him, and then I would get the chance to hear him play um, at Columba. And uh, Larry Grenadier, you know, the great bass player, we, he's from um, Millbrae, which is close to San Francisco. So Larry was playing gigs with Joe Henderson when we were in high school. So Larry, we would, Larry and I would hang out, and he'd be playing bootleg cassettes of him playing trio with Joe Henderson and Mike Hyman, you know, around the San Francisco Bay Area, you know. And, and, and so his playing really had a big influence and really continues to have a big influence on me. I've recently been back into a big uh, Joe Henderson listening phase. Another, you know, back in my 20s, like a big, a big sort of sea change for me was when I really kind of got a lot more deeply into Sonny Rollins, which really kind of completely changed my thinking and my playing and set me on a kind of entirely different path. He's really one of the, the most iconic figures for me in my, and when I think back about it, there was a period where I was, hanging out with Danilo Perez a lot and and he was talking about um rhythm and 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 how to develop things rhythmically, develop more rhythmic language. So that was kind of another turning point. So I feel like Danilo Danilo's presence in my life. We were friends in college and I played in this motherland group in the early two thousands for a couple of years. I mean that was a really turning a real turning point for me. Study, and I just got deep into studying rhythm and folkloric rhythms of the Americas and, and whatnot. So that was tremendous. I mean, Wayne Shorter has always been one of my heroes. The compositional nature of his improvising, his incredible career as a composer and how he keeps evolving and continues to do so, you know, has a big, big impression on me. Um, of course, Duke Ellington, from my first experience in high, in my high school band playing his music, and just continuing to be a, a real fan of his writing and, and musicianship. And I could list, I could sort of keep listing saxophone players. You know, there's uh, like Lester Young and Stan Getz, uh, Chew Berry more recently. There's a lot of people, but I don't want to sort of overwhelm you with names. Sure, no, that, that gives me a good slice of, of, uh, of, of the jazz heroes. But let me ramp the nostalgia up a little bit here for you. If you sure. could catch anybody in the history of jazz live, who would you want to see, and where would you go? <laughs> Village Vanguard, John Coltrane's group. Just to experience that, like front row, right my face, right in front of his horn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh I man, yeah. That. I mean, I had the pleasure. Of, I've seen Sonny 
live. And I've seen Wayne and Joe Henderson. You know, the other person I thought of was Bird, of course, but but probably Train has had a bit, you know, I mean, how, you know, that's picking between, you know, Rembrandt and, you know, Van Gogh or something <laughs> like, you know, but, but I would probably say Train, you know, the Village Vanguard. Right on. So as a man that's dedicated his life to the jazz craft, tell me, why do you love jazz? Um, I think I think it's it's back to my early experiences, a, a, a platform, a forum of expression. That's the first thing that comes to mind. It's just that the ability, the freedom of expression, how that can be a cathartic thing. That's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, of course, it's also... There's so many other elements, but that's the first thing that I think of. And, and you know, it, it also, I guess that, that kind of self-expression is something that, you know, we want everybody in the world, at least I feel, you know, of course, most people feel like how everybody in the world should have the ability to tell their story, you know, and to be free from, you know, censorship and, you know, uh, undue, you know, totalitarian, you know, all these, all these things. And so, so I think that's the, the, one of the things that draws me to the music is just, you know, just that, that, um, the joy of, of, of people telling their stories and being able to tell it in their own way with the musical language that they've come to through their life. So that's, that's a part of, it. I think on, on a, I don't know if, if this is different or just a, another way of me imagining that is just the rhythmic language of jazz music, you know, the way it, you know, this melding of, you know, that the folkloric rhythms of Africa being brought to the Americas, you know, the way it mixed in New Orleans and, and you know, the, that whole rhythmic language that developed, you know, that I think touches me and probably so many people on a really core level, like just reactor rhythm, you know, the swing feel on the ride cymbal, you know, the different feels that people play that I think also, you know, is a, is something that just touches me on a deep level of my humanity and, and, and is moving to me, you know, rhythm. So let me ask you this. When the dust settles with kind of this crush of PR and media that's happening in your life right now, and you get back to doing, you know, what, what you do, you're still doing it, but when it kind of calms down, let's say we hook up in 10 years and I ask mm -hmm. you, What's going on? What are you going to want to talk to me about? What are you hoping is the afterglow of such a magnanimous project that you've gone through and everything that's going on now? Well, I think part of it is um, the current, the band that I have and the current direction I'm, I'm in musically, you know, this mixing and exploration of like electronic and improvisation. You know, I'm, I'm, I want this to continue and develop. You know, as a side note, I'm I'm very grateful to... David Benny, who's produced a lot of my records and has worked really, really closely with me in terms of, you know, laying out a vision and helping to realize that with these records that we've done, Casting for Gravity and Fast Future, he's been, you know, really encouraging me to push the envelope and, and you know, he's the one who encouraged me to, to get to start doing some electric projects and has helped to feed me, you know, electronic and music to listen to as I was getting more familiar with the genre so it's, I want to push further in that direction, and you know I have a um, a new batch of material that came out of that I wrote after we had recorded Black Star, and and it's obviously influenced by David, but also by um, 
this electronic artist, Dead Mouse, who I was listening to a lot. Another influence, Kendrick Lamar, you know, those guys were kind of like the three main figures for the new music. So so I'm, I'm going to record that soon. And so, you know, I'm hoping that that, I'll, I'll be able to sort of continue this exploration into an area that it seems new to me and, and it's a lot of fun to work in. So I want to continue that. And then I would say I also love to, um, and just see where it goes. And, and of course, in a perfect world, I'd love to just be able to expand and, and, you know, maybe do projects with, you know, strings or, you know, a singer or, you know, kind of whatever, whatever feels right. I kind of follow my instinct with these things. So where I'm at right now is, is following that. And, and I just kind of, well, I just want to see where it leads me. So hopefully I'll be able to, it'll lead me and, and well, not hopefully it'll lead me, but I hope to realize where it leads me by following my instinct and then hoping to still collaborate, you know, get a chance to play with some of the greats, which I, is something that I, I, I still love to do. You know, I, a few years ago, I got to play with Bunky Green, just a few tunes on a festival. But it was it was fantastic. Or, you know, just to have a chance to play with some of the elders of the music. Um, hopefully, you know, some of those opportunities will happen over over the next two years, and I could regale you with stories of playing with them ten years from now. <laughs> That'd be awesome, man. We kind of funnel everything down to this final question I have for you, and it's this: Everybody has their perception of of who Donnie is. Your family does, your friends do, those that you play for, management. But who do you think you are? That's a deep question. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, like it's almost the more I think about it, the harder the the harder it is to think of what what I would say. I I, I would say that I, I somebody who I, I love music and it's such an integral part of my life and has been for so long. So I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to express myself and tell my story through music. I try to be present in every moment, especially with my children, and it's hard with so many things going on in life, but I'm I'm trying to, you know, live in the moment. I'm trying to keep studying and keep I mean, one thing about who I am is 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 I I really feel like there's so much more for me to learn about music that it's just still the tip of the iceberg, you know, and 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 I and I just want to keep growing and keep keep pushing to get better as a musician and a person too. I believe in God and, and I'm a Christian and, and I, you know, religion and stuff is so, can be, it means a lot of different things to different people. But for me, it's part of the core of how I process things and, and try to, you know, try to act in the world to, you know, to be compassionate, you know, have empathy and treat everybody and see everybody like they're a, like they're a child of God. You know, not that, you know, somebody's better because of this or that or whatever, you know, that we're all, we all deserve dignity and the respect that I think we deserve. I care a lot about what's going on in the world and I'm distressed like so many people are, you know, about the political situation in our country and and all this (laughs) stuff. And, but yet, you know, some ways I'm, I'm powerless to do a lot about it, but, you know, I try to do what I can by treating people, again, with, you know, respect and compassion. I try to be, to say I'm, you know, trying to be a good person, it sounds such, it's such a cliche, but, you know, just try to treat people with love. And, and I guess, I guess what it comes down to is I remember reading, and I, maybe I'm making this up, but when I was a kid, I remember reading a book about John Coltrane, and it was talking about this, this sense of Coltrane talking about, like, he was playing and the sense of love, trying to trying to 
put forth this sense of love throughout the room, you know, and, and that had a big impression on me as, as, as a kid. I was like, I mean, that is something, that's an ideal worth living for, to be able to play in a room and to put out this, you know, this vibe, this light from the music that could maybe have a positive impact on people's psyche or their well-being, you know, and that's, that's, I think that's something that I still carry with me today, you know, I mean, obviously when you get on the bandstand, there's so many things that can go through your mind and, you know, I just try to get lost in the music, but I think that's a fundamental element of what I would like to have happen and what I strive for is for, you know, whatever emotion is coming through the music that it touches people and moves people in a, in a, in a positive way. That's a beautiful way to end. And I think just kind of as a side note with Coltrane, I think that's been the allure of him is that everything he did was so full of his soul oozing into it, which was undoubtedly full of love. And I think that's why we're going to talk about him until the absolute annals of of the end of jazz times come because that's what he was. Um, that's right. That's right. It was so selfless and, and just present. And, and that's, I think, as a kid... I mean, you listen to him, and it's so amazing and virtuosic, but it's really the thing that I think, it's just what you talked about is what drew me into him. It's just that, the emotional thing, and emotionally, you know, and the, this, just the vibe was so deep, this, you know, spiritual vibe on Love Supreme, and all. I mean, it's just, it's such a, it was so compelling. Without a doubt. Donnie, thank you for opening up with me. I appreciate you giving me your story, your time. It, it, it's oh, a beautiful one. Thank you. It's my it's my pleasure. I mean, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Donnie for his time, his music, and his wit. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. on jazz.